I've been at the White House now for many months, and I'd like to get out. No. I would like to help you, sir. Any way that I can. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN. And by the way, we've got some good news from Maui today, I Yay. think, don't we? Oh, yeah. yes, we do. Palinville, New York's WLPP, Grand Rapids, WPRR. In New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. In Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing, Planet, Earth. Five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Your opinion may vary. Thank you for joining us for another edition of the Bradcast, your stay-at-home radio companion. Glad to have you here. Uh, a tight race may be shaping up in Desi Doyen's home state. Oh, goody. I yes, like to hear that. Her home state of Texas between former Vice President Joe Biden and Donald Trump, according to a new poll. Biden, the presumptive Democratic presidential nominee, but we'll see, uh, has a slim one point lead over Donald Trump in Texas right now. Wow. Based on a new survey released yesterday by Public Policy Polling. Now, for several reasons, don't take too much from this poll. It's, of course, very early, incredibly early. Uh, it is wary April going into May, uh, which is, uh, you know, forever between now and the November election. But that's just one of the reasons. Also, Biden's lead, that one point lead, is within the poll's margin of error. He has 47 percent support. Donald Trump has 46 percent support based on this one survey in the Lone Star State. The poll also shows a closer race between Biden and uh, Trump in Texas as compared to other recent polls. For example, a University of Texas Texas Tribune poll released last week found the president leading his likely Democratic challenger by five points, though even five points in Texas is noteworthy as Trump reportedly de uh, defeated Hillary Clinton by uh, about nine points uh, in the um, 
once, if less so each day, very Republican state of Texas uh, back in 2016. A Democrat has not won a presidential election in Texas since former President Carter in 1976. But the Lone Star State is one of several battleground states the Democrats are hoping to flip in November. And with demographics quickly changing in Texas as it gets bluer by the day, every vote will matter in Texas this year. That's one of the reasons why last week's state court ruling ordering fear of coronavirus to be a legitimate excuse for requesting an absentee ballot is so very important. And it's also one of the reasons why the state's attorney general is madly challenging that state court ruling all the way up to the state's all-Republican Supreme Court, if he needs to, where the ruling would uh, allow every voter in Texas to have an absentee ballot if they want one amid the coronavirus pandemic this November. But at the state Supreme Court, well, that law is likely to be struck down considering that every member of the state Supreme Court is a Republican. But we will see. Republicans certainly do uh, do not want everyone to vote because, as Donald Trump recently said, uh, with levels of voting like that, Republicans might never win another election. But that's not the only lawsuit that has now been filed to open up voting to all voters in a state where turnout has for years been among the worst in the nation in Texas. A suit in federal court was filed this week arguing that the state violates the rights of young people. In this case, young people are people younger than the age of 65. I'll go with that. <laughs> yeah, I guess you would, won't you? <laughs> That would uh, this uh, suit says that uh, the law keeps people from being able to vote in violation of the 26th Amendment that lowered the voting rights age from 21 to 18 in 1971. It's a really interesting case because there are about seven other states that have laws just like this that also seem to clearly violate the 26th Amendment. Slate's Mark Joseph Stern has been reporting on this. He'll join us momentarily to explain that and some uh, lawsuits in state courts around the country that might also save election 2020 amid the pandemic. Uh, speaking of which, as the White House and Republican-run states around the country, like Texas, pretend that all is well and the worst is past us, it's safe again to fling open the doors to business again, that decidedly does not seem to be the case. No matter what you're hearing out there uh, in the media, at, at least to those of us paying attention to the still growing number of infections and deaths from COVID-19, but businesses uh, and the economy come well before actual lives, I guess, for many so-called pro-life Republicans. And businesses and the economy are not doing well right now as we barrel towards the November elections. With a flood of unemployment claims still continuing to overwhelm many state agencies, economists say the job losses may be far worse than the government tallies indicate at this point, and that is not good news based on what the government tallies now indicate. The Labor Department said on Thursday that 3.8 million workers filed for unemployment benefits last week bringing the six-week total to 30 million. Now, I need to underscore how bad that is. I suppose the good news is that 3.8 million new jobless claims last week is smaller than the 4.4 million 
new jobless claims the week before or the 6.6 million the week before that. But all of those numbers going back six weeks of either, uh, I think, 3.2 million was the lowest, 3.2 million or higher over those each of those last six weeks, all dwarf the nation's all-time record of about 965,000 new employee uh, unemployment claims in one single week. That was back in the 1980s. We never, we have never gone over a million in one single week in the 50 or so years that we have been tracking these numbers, even during the Great Recession. Now we have gone well over that, at least three times over that, three times over a million every single week for the past six weeks. This is really bad. And frankly, it's hard to adequately make that point clearly on the radio, just how bad this is without charts and stuff to to show uh, just how out of whack these numbers are with anything in the modern history of the U.S., But according to the New York Times, researchers say that as the economy staggers under the weight of the coronavirus pandemic, millions of others have lost jobs but have not yet seen any benefits from unemployment because, for example, uh, as a study by the Economic Policy Institute found, roughly 50 percent more people than counted as filing claims in a recent four-week period may have qualified for benefits but were stymied while trying to apply or didn't even bother to apply because the process was so difficult. Alexander Bick of Arizona State University and Adam Blandin of Virginia Commonwealth University found that 42% of those working in February, 42%, had lost their jobs or suffered a reduction in earnings. By April 18, they found up to 8 million workers were unemployed, but not reflected in the weekly claims data. So uh, this is because states are having uh, such a difficult time handling all of this, state websites and phone lines, uh, because before the pandemic, just over 200,000 people a week applied for new unemployment benefits. So we went from 200,000 to Three, four, five, six million week after week. These websites, these state systems are simply not set up for that volume. No, they're and not. they've been starved of investment for so many, many years, decades even, that they haven't had the money to upgrade those systems. Ian Shepherdson, the chief economist at Pantheon Macroeconomics, says the level is declining, but it is still breathtakingly high. Claims could stay in the millions, he says, for several more weeks, which is almost unfathom- unfathomable, he says. Michael Gapin, the chief U.S. economist at Barclays, said he expects the unemployment rate to hit 19.5% in April, which is a level unseen since the Great Depression. But that is not all. On uh, There are, were other bad numbers for the economy today as federal programs continue to fail and as the White House continues to flail with no actual plan to see this country out of this mess. U.S. consumer spending plunged 7.5% in March. The Commerce Department said that the spending decline was the sharpest monthly drop on records uh, that go back to 1959. The previous record was just 2.1% in January of 1987. That was the record, 2.1%. In March, it was 7.5%. Consumer spending uh, accounts for some 70% 
of total economic activity in the U.S., and it has been the economy's uh, standout performer in recent years, according to AP. However, with further sharp consumer spending declines, forecast analysts are predicting that GDP will continue to shrink by around 40 percent in the uh, current April to June quarter. That would be the biggest quarterly decline on record by far. So, yes, friendly reminder here. Businesses and corporate CEOs are not the job creators. Consumers are the job creators. Workers are. You and I are. Not the big corporations that Republicans pretend are the backbone of our economy. The workers are. We make up 70% of spending. And when we stop spending, when the, we, the job creators, stop spending, jobs are lost and businesses fail. Because otherwise, why wouldn't they just create more jobs? They can't. They wouldn't. It would be stupid. Uh, of course, Fox News, uh, where they've been selling the uh, businesses are the job creators crap for years... And where their hosts, even as they broadcast from their safe home studio bunkers, are encouraging others to go out and risk their lives to demand that states open up their massage parlors and restaurants and beaches. Well, at least one Fox host this morning on Trump's favorite show, Fox and Friends, is is sort of questioning the wingnut propaganda, at least a little bit politely, because, you know, she's a woman and, you know, the big bad men at Fox have other ideas about it. This was a rare moment of friction between Fox News personalities, uh, co-hosts Ainsley Earnhardt and Brian Kilmeade on Fox and Friends. They clashed on Thursday morning over state's efforts to maintain social distancing during the covid outbreak after uh, Earnhardt uh, Earhart defended Newport Beach City Council's decision to deploy police officers to disperse enormous crowds at uh, the California beach this past weekend. That, while Kilmeade the dunce railed against the move and accused governors of overreaching with their stay-at-home orders. This is the, this is the foundation for an overreach that I never thought was going to happen in this country. As, as serious as the coronavirus is, uh, so are people's freedoms. People are watching their lives melt away, and they can't. Uh, they're at the breaking point. And when they think the governors are overreaching, that's when people are going to snap. Well, you know, that beach was open, and people could make the decisions. The problem is, though, Brian, they started to see more people going to the hospitals after that weekend, after all those images were released in California with corona. So I think the governors have to make tough tough decisions because they don't want a relapse of all of this. That right. wouldn't make them look good. Their their residents would be dying. And then you have, you know, people like my mom is very sick. And as much as I want to go out and I want to I still want everyone to play by the rules because when I finally right. do get to go but, home to visit her. But is your mom going to the want... beach? But is your mom going to the beach? No, but Brian, you know, eventually She's going to be around family again. I understand both sides. I really do. I just don't want a resurgence of this. Um, you know, I, I just don't want us to go through all of this. It's been it's been hard for everyone right. in different Ainsley? levels. Okay, so very Good for her, yeah, first I of know, all. right? Yeah. Uh, but very quickly here, uh, this shows that these dunces like Kilmeade really do not seem to understand the actual deadly concerns about all of this. So yeah, Ainsley, don't back down. You don't have to both sides this one. Uh, whether her mom goes to the beach or not, as Brian Kilmeade kept asking there. It doesn't matter. He doesn't seem to get that. He he thinks that if she doesn't go to the beach, she'll be fine. 
but what happens at the beach does not stay at the beach. Those people come back and they go to their communities and their grocery stores. And yes, they infect Ainsley's mom. And it's amazing that Kilmead and the others on Fox do not get that still or that they just don't give a damn. I don't know. Though I suspect that they won't be going to those beaches now, will they? Uh, It's just amazing. So good for her. I agree <laughs> because she's absolutely right and and you are too as well about that this will enhance community spread. The whole idea is we stop community spread. You break the link. You don't help spread the infection. And this is what's going to happen now as we're uh, opening up these states around the country. So buckle up. It's only going to get worse, not better in every regard. All right, anyway, uh yeah, wing nuts still own the airwaves. But they do not own our elections or our votes, at least not if I and the U.S. Constitution still have anything to say about it, which, yes, I know is now a matter of some debate, even from those pretend Republican constitutionalists. Legal journalist Mark Joseph Stern joins us next on the fight to vote in Texas and everywhere else this year. Between now and November 3rd, it's on. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today. That's bradblog.com donate and thanks. Headed for the open door. Tell me what you're waiting for. Look across the great divide. Soon they're Yeah, you know, whenever I hear that song, I think about uh, young people who are going too. to come running and save us. <laughs> Uh, whether they will or not this election, I don't know, uh, unless we consider young people to be younger than 65. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, we cover uh, elections a lot on this program, as you may have noticed, with a focus less on the horse races and much more on the rights of voters and the integrity of our elections. To that end, as you also may have noticed, states are now scrambling to figure out how to allow safe elections in the middle of a global pandemic. With about 20 states holding primaries coming up in the next month or three and all 50 states holding arguably the most critical presidential election in our nation's history this November. All of that right in the middle of an unprecedented health emergency that makes in-person voting at polling places a potential death trap for millions of Americans. So jurisdictions around the country are scrambling and voters and voting rights advocates are suing to try and ensure that voting can be done safely without abridging the rights of citizens to vote. In just the past week or two on this program, we have been uh, covering a spate of lawsuits being filed across the country, many of them in critical swing states this year. In Georgia, voters are suing to prevent the use of touchscreen voting machines across the entire state, arguing, among other things, that they are now uh, a disease vector in the middle of the COVID crisis. 
In North Carolina, a similar suit to mandate hand-marked paper ballots for all, whether via mail or at the polling place, has also been filed to prevent the use of unverifiable, insecure, and dangerous touchscreen voting systems in about 20 counties across the state, including the most diverse and therefore Democratic-leaning counties in perhaps the most closely divided state in the country, North Carolina. In New York State, we discuss the suit filed by former Democratic Party presidential candidate Andrew Yang and several voters yesterday against the State Board of Elections and their recent vote to remove the Democratic presidential primary from their upcoming June elections. In Texas last week, voting rights advocates had a victory, at least for now, in state court after suing to allow all voters to cite fear of the coronavirus as an excuse to receive an absentee ballot for this year's elections. The judge in that case found in favor of the plaintiff, but the state's Republican attorney general has vowed to appeal and has even threatened third parties with criminal liability if they advise voters to use such an excuse in order to obtain a vote-by-mail ballot this year. That case is likely to end up being decided by the state's all-Republican state Supreme Court. In Missouri, a month or two ago, the state was forced to back off of its photo ID voting restrictions after the state Supreme Court found it that that law violated voters' rights to vote, and the judge even found a specific violation of the rights of trans voters to lawfully and constitutionally cast their votes a threat to voting rights that I had not even considered previously in all of my years covering this beat. We discussed that particular case at the time on this program with Slate.com's ace legal reporter Mark Joseph Stern at the time as he noticed that very specific point in the court's ruling. And now... Leave it to Mark to raise yet another voting rights issue that I had not thought much about, but he certainly has after a federal case has been filed this week in Texas charging that the state is violating the rights of young voters to be able to cast an absentee ballot under state law in violation of the 26th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, which reads in full, don't worry, it's very short, it's just two sentences, Section 1, the right of citizens of the United States who are 18 years of age or older to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of age. Section 2 reads simply, the Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. Ratified in 1971, the 26th Amendment, as Stern explains this week at Slate, is often viewed as a relic of the Vietnam War era when 18-year-olds protested the fact that they were old enough to be drafted but not to cast a ballot. Ratified in less than 100 days, the amendment enshrined in the, Constitution's, in the Constitution citizens' right to vote at age 18, knocking down the laws that set the voting age at 21. For decades, he says, the guarantee was rarely invoked in court since lawmakers generally honored it. But as today's voting rights foes exploit a pandemic in order to disenfranchise Americans... The amendment now has newfound importance. It should prevent states from discriminating against younger voters with both subtle and brazen tactics. 
Well, the suit filed in Texas on Wednesday seeks to overturn a Texas voting restriction that few have questioned over the years, even as similar laws are currently in place in Indiana, Louisiana, Mississippi, South Carolina, Tennessee and Kentucky, all of which Stern argues are in clear violation of the 26th Amendment. Of course, we are joined once again today by the great Mark Joseph Stern to explain that and several other matters of constitutional concern. Mark covers the law, the court system, the U.S. Supreme Court, election law, and much more at Slate.com. Oh, Mr. Stern, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Always digging up those fresh angles on voting rights to keep you uh, yes. to keep you on your toes. You really are. You come up with stuff that I had not thought of, and and this is another really good one and could have a, a, a big effect. Okay, as I noted, uh, I've got a few other matters I want to talk to you about as well, but I want to get to this fascinating 26th Amendment case you highlight. But first, last time you were on, Mark, we discussed the problem that courts were having uh, safely holding here hearings and carrying out, you know, their their important business. That was over a month ago, I think, which is sort of forever ago in coronavirus time. But have courts around the country now figured out how to safely carry out important legal proceedings like this case we're, we're going to talk about in a second? Have they figured out how to do this over the past month? So... Sort of. Uh, We have seen courts in both the state and federal systems adapt relatively quickly to the reality of a pandemic, which largely means moving operations onto the phone or online. And there's a whole lot you can do uh, virtually. Mm -hmm. You can hold oral arguments if you are an appeals court, right? That's going to happen at the U.S. Supreme Court uh, in May. There's going to be two weeks of telephonic arguments for the Mm -hmm. first time ever. Uh, You know, the judges can uh, sort of debates in their private time, write emails back and forth. And uh, for, for people who have, say, civil cases, there are a lot of appearances and motions that can be taken care of. But the, the, the bread and butter of a trial court, um, uh, that just is still totally beyond the horizon. I don't think anyone has figured out how you're going to hold a criminal trial uh, mm. when people can't safely go to a courtroom because the Constitution actually requires in-person uh, confrontation with witnesses. So you can't just Skype in your criminal trial. You have to do it in person. And I saw an image from the ACLU, which is in court uh, in Colorado, attacking a law, mm-hmm. and they are wearing full PPE, a mask, a surgical gown, wow. um, you know, eye protective gear. So I think we're going to see more and more of that. I wow. think we're going to see more people going into courtrooms dressed up like surgeons trying to keep the wheels of justice spinning without catching or spreading uh, COVID-19. Wow. Uh, That will be an amazing sight. And uh, sadly, it's necessary because a lot of these people you mentioned who are awaiting criminal trial, they have not been found guilty of anything. And yet they're sitting in jails that have become, uh, you know, Petri dishes for coronavirus. They haven't even been, uh, you know, found guilty of anything, and yet many of them may be facing a life sentence, essentially, uh, if they die in jail because of the the virus. Yeah, and I'm I'm so glad you put it that way because I've seen some uh, sort of law and order dinosaurs say, "Well, why should we worry about prisoners? You know, why should we worry about these people if they've mm-hmm. committed crimes? They're behind bars." Well, like you said, a lot of them have not actually been convicted of crimes. Yeah. a lot of them are legally and constitutionally innocent yeah. and could 
die from a, from a disease they catch behind bars through no fault of their own. But more than that, people who have been convicted mm-hmm. were sentenced to a very specific punishment, right? right? Yeah. Say three years in prison. They were not sentenced to death, right. but they are facing a possible death sentence with the coronavirus infecting so many prisons and jails. So it is a crisis, and we've seen a really uneven response across the states. Some states like Washington and New Jersey have tried to release uh, people held in jail who haven't been convicted yet uh, because, you know, they're legally innocent. Most of them pose no threat to society. Mm -hmm. They should not be languishing behind bars during a pandemic. But there are other states where, you know, mostly Republican states, uh, Republican lawmakers are fighting those kinds of releases. They're taking a tough-on-crime approach, and I fear that that is just going to add to the death total of this disease. Yeah, and, and at the federal level, they're not doing a very good job as well either. No, we, no, we, not at all. The Bureau of Prisons is, is, is working is horribly and very slowly. Horribly. And really lying a lot. Yeah, we had uh, uh, Governor Don Siegelman of Alabama who spent uh, about five years at the Oakdale Prison down in Louisiana, and he uh, and he's now out. But he explained the conditions that uh, folks are are forced to live in. There is no way that you can't social distance in in that setting. And it's uh, deadly and dangerous and uh, it does need more attention. But, of course, uh, the answer to all of this, I find, uh, to be elections, to help find our way out of this disastrous mess, uh, frankly. It's sort of our last hope. So let's talk about this 26th Amendment case, fascinating, filed in federal court in Texas this week, in which uh, your writing suggests that plaintiffs should really have a pretty easy slam dunk based on the simple text of the amendment, which reads the rights of citizens of the United States who are 18 years of age or older to vote shall not be denied or bridged by the United States or by any state on account of age. So how are plaintiffs alleging that Texas is abridging that very basic right for voters? Yeah, so Texas is one of seven states that grants special privileges to older voters. So in Texas and six other states, you are allowed to vote absentee uh, if you qualify, but to qualify, you have to basically either have a serious medical illness or be over the age of 65. Mm -hmm. So if you are a 65-year-old in Texas, no problem. You don't have to worry about coronavirus at the polling places. You just put in for an absentee ballot and you get it. You send it back. No issue. If you are 64, you have no such luxury. You have to expose yourself to the coronavirus in order to vote at the polls, or at least that is what the the state government is saying. Now, like Mm -hmm. you said, there's a a court challenge to the specific Texas law here more broadly, uh, but that's all in the state system. Mm -hmm. This case is about the age restriction, and it's a really cut-and-dry case, I think, uh, because, as you indicated, the 26th Amendment is pretty unambiguous. Um, It's really short, and it's not just about setting the voting age at 18. People often think it's a a really narrow kind of rule, Mm -hmm. but it's not at all. It it says, and I'm glad you read it because those crucial words at the end really stand out now. Mm -hmm. It says that the, the, the government cannot abridge, not just deny, but abridge voting rights on account of age. So it's not just about letting 18-year-olds vote. It's saying that in the eyes of the state, all voters must be treated equally no matter their age. There have to be age-blind voting rules. And that's simply not what Texas has done here. Instead, Texas has said if you are 
over a certain age, you get a, you get a privilege. Mm-hmm. And if you are under a certain age, you essentially get a burden. And that is exactly the kind of thing the 26th Amendment was passed to try to abolish. Mm-hmm. And I, I just don't see any plausible defense to these kind of age-restrictive voting laws. Not if you're dealing with uh, so-called conservative judges <laughs> who are textualists or whatever, originalists, if they read this uh, uh, amendment... It seems like there's really no way around this. They would either have to, uh, as I understand it, they would either have to take away that right from people who are 65 and older uh, so that nobody gets to vote by absentee or they would have to grant it to everyone. And I'm kind of surprised that this has not been challenged before. Kind of seems like a no brainer, to be frank. Yeah, I think there is some fear that the court would do what you just indicated and um, strike down the entire law. Mm -hmm. I I think that fear is misplaced. I think that's a very unlikely outcome because generally, and this is very contested, but generally when a court finds that a part of a law is unconstitutional, they're they're just supposed to sever the unconstitutional provision uh, and leave the rest in place unless they feel like the the government would have never wanted all of the rest of the law to stand without that one faulty bit. And I think it's very clear here that Texas wanted a relatively robust mail-in ballot regime. They wanted to ensure that a large group of voters would be able to vote absentee, but then they put in these extra limitations that are arbitrary and unconstitutional. And so I think the obviously correct course for, for any judge looking at this is to basically cross out the unconstitutional words, you know, above the age of 65 and leave all of the rest of the statute untouched, which would effectively let everyone vote absentee regardless of their age. Now, you you yourself are, are an attorney. Am I, am I right about yes. that? Okay. Yes. So, uh, and I'm going to ask you this for a specific reason, because I, I, I know as an attorney, you always need to, you know, figure out how the other side is going to argue their case uh, and right. so forth. How would you argue against this particular case if you had to defend it? So if I had to defend this case, I would probably say that prohibiting absentee balloting uh, for a certain age group does not abridge their right to vote under mm-hmm. the 26th Amendment. I would say that when the, when the Constitution speaks of abridging the right to vote, mm-hmm. um, it, it's talking about more severe burdens than simply forcing voters to choose between the most convenient methods of uh, casting a ballot. And mm-hmm. I would also probably say that uh, the, the focus of this amendment was on helping young people, specifically people aged 18 through 20, helping to sort of bring them into uh, civil society and into sort of the American civic self-governance system. Oh, well, now you're now you're trying to get into the brain of the people that passed it instead of just reading the literal exactly. text of the amendment, right? And, and so I think both of those, I, I think those are the arguments that Texas will likely make, but I think both of them have to fail because if you just read the text, it says very broadly with mm-hmm. no qualifications that you cannot have age-based voting restrictions. And, you know, even if I were to try to get in minds of the people who passed it, which uh-huh. is, we know, not a good idea, according to textualists and, and 
uh, people who right. hate legislative history, the right. Senate and the House of Representatives were looking at more than just an outright denial of, of the right to vote. They weren't just talking about a law that said, if you're 18, you can't vote. They were also talking about laws that were very common at the time that made it more difficult for younger people to vote, that allowed county registrars to ask them different questions, tougher questions, uh, to give them more discretion to deny registration from young people. Mm -hmm. And those are the kinds of burdens that aren't an outright ban, but are still abridging the right to vote that I think pretty clearly fall under the amendment. And uh, one of the reasons I ask you this, well, the reason I ask you is because uh, the only thing that I can come up with to legitimately try to defend against this lawsuit would be to say, well, okay, you may not be able to vote by mail, but you have many other ways you can vote if you want at the polling places, etc. Therefore, your right is not being abridged. But that argument actually seems like it would cut against Second Amendment arguments that these very same defendants have made for years. Because when I was reading the 26th Amendment again today, I was struck by how similar it is actually constructed to the Second Amendment, which says uh, simply a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. The 26th Amendment says the right of citizens of the United States who are 18 years of age of older to vote shall not be denied or abridged. It sounds to me like, you know, if if Texas argues that, oh, voters can vote some other way, doesn't that undermine the Second Amendment argument that blocking the sale of guns in some fashion is unconstitutional? Because, well, there's other ways that people could also keep and bear arms. Even if you shut down a gun shop, you can buy a gun online or through some other means. Wouldn't they be undermining their own Second Amendment argument by arguing against this case? Uh, absolutely. I hadn't even thought of that, but it's a very keen observation. And there is a general rule that we should assume that when the Constitution repeats certain language, certain words or phrases, that it generally means the same thing, especially with regard to amendments where we know Congress wasn't writing on a clean slate, where it mm-hmm. is, uh, you know, it, it is altering the Constitution in light of everything that has come before. And surely when Congress wrote the 26th Amendment, it knew of other uses of a bridge that have a much broader meaning than simply uh, an outright denial. So I, I think that's right. I think it's a very strong argument. But, you know, tech, the, the Texas Attorney General's office is run by Ken Powell. Paxton. This is yes. a man who was indicted for securities fraud, yes. who has a long, unsavory history of corruption. Still, and make I, that clear, still indicted, currently yes. under indictment for securities right. fraud, as he is the top law enforcement official in the state of Texas. Who, okay. who then engaged in a very sordid campaign to oust the judge who was overseeing the charges against him. Um, I, I mean, this, is, this guy is a monster. He's not, <laughs> a, he's not really a lawyer, per se. He's more like a kind of walk blob of total nihilistic <laughs> corruption. Um, and so, I, you know, I can't imagine he will care about being a hypocrite in court. Hopefully we don't have so many Trump judges on the bench at this stage mm. um, that, you know, the judiciary will care about consistency more than he does. Well, I guess that's the next question. How quickly can a law like this, if, if plaintiffs are right uh, in their argument, how quickly can it be struck down given that Texas is going to need to begin absentee mail voting in about five months for the November election and changing this law would hugely change the number of absentee mail ballots that they'll need to print up and be prepared to count and send out and all of that. How how quickly can this uh, can this move forward? 
Yeah, so, I mean, you know, I think there's a, a decent chance of getting a good ruling in the lower court. They filed in a, in a court with some good level-headed judges, straight shooters. Um, but, of course, the, the state is going to appeal to the Fifth Circuit. And mm -hmm. as I believe we've discussed on this show, I mean, the Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of mm -hmm. Appeals is totally captured by Donald Trump. It mm -hmm. has some of the worst, most outwardly partisan, hackish, nihilistic judges that this country has ever seen in its entire history mm. um, are sitting on that bench. And so I, I fear that even if there's a good ruling in the trial court that the Fifth Circuit is going to just quickly block it and then run down the clock, uh, right? Just hold the case uh, using whatever mm. administrative tricks it can until it says, oh, well, we're too close to the election, so the Purcell principle yeah. kicks in, so we can't change this. I mean, I'm sure that's the game. Um, and so I'm not super optimistic about this court mm. succeeding. I, I, that's why I tried to say in my piece, if we have honest and impartial and fair-minded judges, then this law must be struck down. But it may also just face the buzzsaw that is the Fifth Circuit. Yeah, and that, yeah, that, that one if is a whole lot of ifs in this particular right. case. If we did have such a court, and if they did uh, look at this legitimately and on an emergency basis, because this is now more important than ever, obviously, it's not just a matter of rights uh, to vote. It's a matter of, you know, sort of right to live and not right. be, uh, uh, you know, sickened by coronavirus and possibly killed. If we had courts that did the right thing here in this case, would that at the same time strike down the similar laws in Indiana, Louisiana, Mississippi, South Carolina, Tennessee and, and, and Kentucky, who all have similar restrictions on absentee voting? Well, no, you'd have to get a decision from the U.S. Supreme Court to make all of those laws fall at once. So, uh, you know, there's really no chance the U.S. Supreme Court's going to hear this case before then, before the November election, I mm -hmm. should say. And so if there's a good ruling out of Texas, actually, even if there isn't, I think voting rights lawyers are going to be marching into court in at least some of those other states and making the same argument and hoping for a different judge mm -hmm. if they lose in Texas. You know, they are ready to sort of reinvigorate the 26th Amendment, because if not now, then when? And, uh, yeah, if not now, then when? Of course, that when may be uh, down the road a bit after this election. Uh, but uh, it'll be interesting to see, because I'll be interested to see how the courts respond. And if they respond with language, that can then be used to challenge other findings on the Second Amendment. We'll find <laughs> out. Mark, uh, speaking of the Purcell principle, which is the... Uh, U.S. Supreme Court's uh, sort of randomly decided notion that they will not allow changes to any election-related laws too close in the run-ups to elections, no matter how unconstitutional such laws uh, may be or how many people they might disenfranchise or if it's the, in the middle of a pandemic, potentially kill people if it stays in place. Well, we saw that they were willing to do exactly that in Wisconsin a few weeks ago uh, in early April, and uh, they for the U.S. U.S. Uh, Supreme Court essentially forced voters to choose between risking their lives to vote or losing their right to vote in the uh, Wisconsin presidential primary and their statewide Supreme Court election. That was horrific, as you and I both have been covering over the past month. But you also uh, note that that means that if the U.S. Supreme Court is not going to do it, state Supreme Courts uh, can can actually protect the 2020 elections. Uh, please explain. Yeah, so I think we often forget about them, uh, <laughs> but state courts exist, and they are really important because 
our states, every one of them, all 50 plus Puerto Rico, uh, have constitutions that govern state law. And those constitutions are often much broader than the federal constitution that we're usually talking about. Uh, and state Supreme Courts actually have final say over the meaning of uh, state constitutions. And I think we were all reminded about this when state courts in Pennsylvania and North Carolina mm-hmm. struck down gerrymandered maps yeah. as a violation of their own state constitutions. And the reason they were able to do that is that Pennsylvania and North Carolina are two of 28 states that have constitutions requiring uh, some baseline level of freedom and fairness in elections. So some of these constitutions require that elections be free and equal, others free and fair, um, the others say you have to have an equal right to vote. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the basic idea here is that there is a specific and explicit guarantee of a free and fair election in the state constitution. And what we're now seeing are voting rights advocates marching into state courts and places like South Carolina mm-hmm. and saying, look, this election cannot be free and fair if people have to make the choice between risking their lives and exercising their constitutional rights. Uh, there has to be a way for citizens to cast a ballot without exposing themselves to the coronavirus, or else this, this election will violate the state constitution. And I think that's a very, very powerful argument, mm. and uh, it, it really dovetails nicely with a broader argument that other voting rights advocates are making, even in those states that don't guarantee a free election, they all guarantee the right to vote in mm-hmm. their constitution. And so this kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier. If you, if you cannot vote without potentially risking your life, your right to vote has clearly been abridged. Mm-hmm. You've been put into a terrible quandary. You have to make an awful choice. We've already learned that people got infected while voting in person in Wisconsin. People are not going to want to show up to the polls in person. And so voting rights advocates are asking state courts to rule on the basis of state constitutions that every voter should have a right to a mail-in ballot because anything less will render the election basically illegitimate. And uh, they're filing uh, quite a few of these cases around the country. Is that uh, correct? Yes, that's right. So not just in uh, not not just in South Carolina, but also in Pennsylvania, in mm-hmm. Nevada, North Carolina again, in Montana. Because even though these states aren't necessarily liberal, uh, they have somewhat fair-minded judiciaries, mm-hmm. and uh, they again have these state constitutional rights that they should be able to vindicate. You know, it doesn't matter what the U.S. Supreme Court says about any of this. This is a whole different ball game, and the, the, the lawyers here are hoping that state Supreme Court justices are going to be more sympathetic to voting rights than the five conservatives on SCOTUS. God, I hope so, and maybe save the 2020 elections. You, you say the, the U.S. Supreme Court then cannot uh, overrule state Supreme courts if they uh, change, even if they change voting laws too close to an election, you know, as the Republicans on the stolen uh, U.S. Supreme Court may see it? Yeah, the Purcell principle does not apply when state courts are enforcing state law. So that whole scheme, which is often just used to uphold voter suppression, or Mm -hmm. basically always used to uphold voter suppression, that is not applicable in state court when we're talking about state law. Totally different set of rules. So, you know, theoretically, this could be a, a path to preserving free election in some states, not every state, right? Some states have awful Supreme Courts. Just look at Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. 
But other states, even if they lean to the right, like Montana, have pretty good, solid, straight-shooting Supreme Courts, and uh, voting rights advocates are putting their faith in those justices. Mark, I think when uh, you started coming on this show some years ago, it was not a, a, about uh, election cases. I don't think you were a specifically a voting rights attorney. But you have, uh, I've noticed over time, you've been covering elections more and more and more uh, in your work. A, I want to thank you for that. And uh, B, is there a reason why? Well, mm, one reason is that Slate has uh, an initiative called Who Counts, Mm -hmm. where we allocate extra resources to focus on voting rights coverage Mm -hmm. because we think it's really important. Um, And so I, I am just encouraged to cover these issues because we at Slate believe that they're vital and that readers should should be able to learn about them. And so that's a big reason why. And people who want to support Who Counts can basically just Google it and learn more about it. Um, but another reason, and I think, you know, this may go without saying, but I, 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 I am very concerned with the uh, with the obvious encroachment on the right to vote that has occurred even in, in, in my lifetime, mm-hmm. especially since Shelby County versus Holder, when the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act. Mm-hmm. And I often feel like, you know, people for decades in this country operated under a regime that was pretty protective of the right to vote. I mean, there were hits and misses. We all remember 2000. But at the end of the day, there was this sweeping federal law that ensured that you had recourse if your if your voting rights were taken away and that states couldn't just screw people over and disenfranchise them willy-nilly and that's gone now you know the supreme court has gutted the voting rights act it's planning to gut it even more i fear and it's become so easy for states and local governments to suppress the votes and i feel like if we aren't covering it if we aren't talking about it and shouting about it from the rooftops those people will have no recourse. Yeah. We need to focus on this as the chief threat to democracy. There are so many other issues that I do care deeply about, but this is sort of at the foundation yeah. of all of them, because if we can't vote the, the bad guys out, then we are truly screwed on every front. It okay. is the last firewall, as uh, yeah. I've said many times. You're absolutely right. Uh, Mark, thank you for all of that coverage. Mark Joseph Stern can be found on a daily basis at Slate.com. You can follow him on the Twitters at MJS underscore DC. Always great talking to my friend, talking to you, my friend, and uh, I always hope to do it more frequently. So hope to talk to you soon, Mark. (laughs) Always a pleasure. I hope to talk to you as early as next week. Thank you, sir. I look forward to it. Okay, quick break, and we are back with Desi Doyen in the Green News Report with a bona fide surprise ending. (laughs) That's straight ahead on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. I'm just uh, looking down the list here of what we cover on uh, today's Green News Report. It's just crazy. <laughs> it is. It's just crazy day after day after day. So let's get to it. Our latest crazy, 
Green News Report. 22 plants have closed because of the virus in the last two months, and at least 20 meatpacking and food processing workers have died. Crises at meatpacking plants, a reckoning for industrial agriculture. Scientists warn environmental destruction will lead to more pandemics. Western U.S. in beginning stages of mega drought. Plus, this is one of the most important victories of our time. Big win for clean water from the U.S. Supreme Court. Really? Yes, really. All of those surprises and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Turns out the best present for Earth Day is the same as the best present for Mother's Day. Tie him away from her children. Happy Mother's Day, Mom. See ya sometime. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, it is horrible what is going on at the nation's meatpacking plants. But I will really miss meat. Okay. Well, you're not the only one. On Tuesday, President Donald Trump signed a broadly worded executive order directing meatpacking plants to stay open during the coronavirus pandemic, designating them as critical infrastructure under the Defense Production Act in the wake of many plants closing due to large COVID-19 outbreaks and deaths among workers. Well, I will miss meat. But it is hardly critical infrastructure. Well, Trump's actual legal authority is murky here, but his message is clear. In the Oval Office on Tuesday, Trump said the biggest issue was shielding meatpacking companies from legal liability if they fail to protect their workers from the virus when they force them back to work. That'll solve any liability problems where they had certain liability problems. And uh, as you know, there's plenty of supply. It was a very unique circumstance because of liability. That's the biggest problem, not the fact that thousands of meat packers are getting sick and dying? According to Trump, yes. Critics say the COVID-19 shutdowns have ushered in a day of reckoning for industrial livestock farms, with U.S. farmers now forced to either feed or kill tens of thousands of livestock animals that they cannot get to market. These critics say the pandemic has exposed the weaknesses of the U.S. industrial food system, which is consolidated into just a handful of giant corporations thanks to deregulation that has led to grueling working conditions, reduced compensation for farmers, and lobbying power to block regulations requiring them to cut air and water pollution and planet warming emissions from concentrated animal feeding operations. Mm. Meanwhile, the world's leading biodiversity experts warn that the global coronavirus pandemic is likely to be followed by even more frequent deadly and destructive disease outbreaks unless humanity halts relentless destruction of nature. Fantastic. Because that is bringing more people into contact and conflict with wild animals. Scientists with the United Nations Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity cautioned in a research letter this week, quote, there is a single species responsible for the COVID-19 pandemic, us. I knew it. They say any economic recovery packages must strengthen and enforce environmental protections or else we are, quote, essentially subsidizing emergence of future pandemics. Well, we are. And no, they won't fix that either. 
In other news, a new study warns that the western U.S. is likely already in the beginning stages of a climate change-driven mega drought. Also fantastic. That is a severe regional drought that lasts decades or longer. Previous historical mega droughts in North America have been triggered by natural climate cycles, but according to new research published in the journal Science, the researchers determined that man-made global warming is playing a key role here, responsible for about half the pace and the severity of the current drought, which they say appears to have started around the year 2000. God, we really suck, don't we? But there is some good news. Thank you. In a major ruling with big implications for sewage plants and other industries, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled against a Maui County wastewater treatment plant that for decades has pumped millions of gallons of treated sewage into groundwater. Studies showed that some of that wastewater reached the ocean and damaged coral reefs. The Trump Environmental Protection Agency reversed its Obama-era position and argued that it was fine and the Clean Water <laughs> Act only applies to pollutants that are directly dumped in the ocean. But in a 6-3 ruling returning the case to a lower court, the justices rejected that argument. On Hawaii News Now, one of the plaintiffs, Hannah Bernard, executive director of the Hawaii Wildlife Fund, called closing that loophole huge. If we had lost, it would have led to even worse conditions being perpetuated with no permits being necessary for polluters to go ahead and just stick a pipe into a ground near a body of water and pollute. So this is one of the most important victories of our times. Wow. And one of the most shocking. Are you sure this came from the U.S. Supreme Court? Yes, it is a surprise, but I'll take it. I'll take whatever we can get. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide, please, on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyne. And this has been your Green News Report. Baby, what a big surprise. Right before my very eyes. Oh, oh, oh. Well done, Desiree. <laughs> yep. Nice to have a surprise ending for a change. Indeed. And from the U.S. Supreme Court of all people, what must have happened to them? What I were they know. thinking? And the uh, three justices who dissented were Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch. Naturally. So Roberts uh, came to the, 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 the light. And Kavanaugh. And Kavanaugh. Imagine that. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Uh, and hey, uh, enjoy it, uh, folks up there in uh, Maui on KAKU, our listeners. All right, we got to get out. Thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Mark Joseph Stern of Slate.com. And Desi, did you hear it? He said he would come back next week. Ooh, I look forward so to I'm it. So I'm going to take him up on that if I can. Uh, also, thanks to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. That, of course, is made possible by those of you who help us stay on your public airwaves when you stop by bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you in advance. You can drop me email if you want. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. I read them all and reply to most. You can also find me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Brad Blog. That's it. Until we meet again soon, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs>